All the Rage with John Bowd. www.tracksfm.org Hello listeners, welcome once again to another episode of All The Rage. As ever, I am deeply thankful for you listening. Although I never seem to say that on a live show, I only ever say it on the previous course, but there you go. Maybe I'm I'm not as thoughtful as I thought I was. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, this show has been a long time in the making. Uh, I'm very, very happy to say it's happening. I'm very passionate about it. I think very thoughtful history of uh, subculture, which is very dear to, I think, everyone's heart here. I've got a couple of very important guests this evening, and it gives me great pleasure to hand over to the both of them right now to introduce themselves. So please introduce yourselves, my lovely guests. My name uh, is Lindsay Wesker. Uh, I have been uh, in the music industry for 40 years. I started as a, a music journalist all the way back in 1981, uh, writing for a newspaper called Black Echoes. And uh, that introduced me to um, an, an amazing sound system in the UK called the Mastermind Roadshow. And the Mastermind Roadshow uh, gave me, uh, introduced me to my first pirate radio station. They they introduced me to the owner of uh, Invicta, Invicta Radio, rather, Invicta FM. And I did my first radio show on Invicta FM. I lasted 40 minutes, bang on the door, DTI escaped out the back window with my records. Didn't want to lose my records. So my first show lasted 40 minutes. Then I did uh, LWR, another pirate radio station. Uh, then I did JFM. Finally, I joined Pirate Kiss FM in 1986. And I was with them as a pirate for four years. Helped them get a legal license. We went legal in 1990. I was uh, head of music at Legal Kiss between 90. In 1994, there's a whole record company CV and TV station CV as well, but maybe maybe we'll get into that later. Hi, my name's David R.B., um, uh, one of the co-owners and co-founders of Tracks FM. Uh, we started off as a pirate station in northwest London on 103.3. Um, we started off as a group of young guys wishing to play um, street music, uh, that could be soul funk, disco, reggae, hip-hop, which was up and coming then. Um, and we just felt we wanted to create our own opportunities as well as giving opportunities to uh, up-and-coming rappers, uh, musicians and DJs, um, which we did, in fact. Um, we then um, became an integral form of the, uh, all part of the Bangra Aldea scene, uh, fusing hip-hop, reggae uh, with Bangra. And obviously that we were part of a machine of that massive Bangra Aldea scene um, throughout the country. Um, we went on to produce a uh, feature in many um, Bangra LPs and World Beat LPs, made numerous TV appearances um, in between. Um, we then restarted Tracks FM in 2014 on the internet um, and still um, own our own publishing company and record label and still look for new artists to promote and play, still look for rappers, still look for up-and-coming DJs who are looking for a break and still feature even back in 85 uh, social issues we wanted to feature what kids were going through at that time when we we're only young 18 year olds right fortunately i'm also not going to be presenting this on my own thank god julie v is also here to help me out hi i'm julie v and i am a guest host i suppose <laughs> for this very special episode of all the rage um i'm really excited actually to be here and to be talking to Lindsay and david 
about their um, esteemed history um, in in pirate radio. So you've both like spoken a little bit about you know the stations you worked on um, and you know given a little bit of history. I'm kind of interested to know where you broadcast from and also what was your setup in those days. Uh, well, Lindsay had the, Lindsay. Um as Kiss, if I can remember, you had the cream of the crop in in regards to engineers. You had Roger, didn't you? I mean, we had so much, so much going in our favour, really. Um, I mean, you know, I, I always give all the credit to Gordon Mack. Um, you know, he 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 was quite a he was quite an unusual character within the kind of London club scene. I mean, he was kind of music music lover, amazing DJ. And so people respected him on a musical level as well. But he was also a club promoter and, and you know, he was an honest and a, a decent man and he didn't rip people off and paid people what he said he was going to pay them and didn't kind of renege on deals. So, you know, people people liked him as a, as a DJ, you know, trusted him as a businessman. And he was just able to, you know, assemble uh, amazing broadcasters, amazing technical people. Uh, yeah, really, really kind of brilliant anti-establishment uh, technical people who would not be denied. You know, they wanted to, um, they wanted to, they wanted to get pirate radio stations on air. So you know, every time we got taken off, these brilliant, these brilliant anti-establishment guys were like, you know, yeah, bugger you, we're gonna be back on in a few hours you know you can you can stop me momentarily but you won't stop me indefinitely we had a ridiculous situation whereby other pirate operators were actually getting up onto the roof and just conveniently snipping our wires and just sabotaging you know what we'd set up and paul anderson actually got his nickname because he said you know i'm getting sick of all of this I am going to sleep on the roof overnight with a baseball bat. <laughs> I'd heard about that. So Paul actually slept overnight on the roof with a baseball bat. It was that kind of petty um, and just so irritating. You know, Gordon asked me to do the breakfast show, so I'm schlepping from Harlesden all the way to, you know, uh, where were we? In Allgate East. We had a studio in Allgate East somebody's council flat in Allgate East. So I slept all that way, got there about 5.30 in the morning. And just before 6, Gordon said, you, you might as well go home, mate, because somebody snipped our wires, you know. Yeah, thank you for that, Lindsay. I can safely say, although we were victims of that, um, once we were using um, Haskell House up there in Stonebridge, we were victims of that uh, towards uh, the middle part of 1986, um, when we started to get popular, because at that time we were touring a lot of um, northwest London schools, uh, so we were getting popular with the kids. You know, we'd turn up, uh, we'd go visit most of the secondary schools in northwest London, uh, just promoting the station and meeting kids. Kids are sort of roughly our age, but we would never ever sabotage um, other stations. And bearing in mind that Halston crew pretty much knew us, the police knew us, because we'd be hulking these great antennas through Halston's High Street at two in the morning in the end they just said let them get on with it um, and then a lot of the kids up in those estates were a bit naughty anyway you'd have to slip them a fiver um, 
because they used to get the um if you didn't buy any gear off them, you know, solid, solid. We would never ever disrespect another station's equipment. I wasn't, I wasn't accusing you of no, it. No, we'd heard about it, when Lindsay, but it's just, it's just a parameter <laughs> we would never cross. And yeah, and amongst many challenges, not just from arrival stations, of course, you had the DTI. The DTI, Department of Trade and Industry, telegraph officers. Uh, would get a warrant for the studio. Bear in mind the studio would be anywhere. Ours was in Neasden, Grenfell Towers, um, Halston. Um, so they would come knocking on the door with a warrant and take everything in the studio, uh, including records as well. Your rig, that's your transmitter, may be in the same place, but during that time in the mid-'80s, uh, microwave links were, coming, were becoming popular. Uh, basically, it's a link from the studio to the transmitter, which could be elsewhere the transmitter, but have to be line of sight. They would normally track them down as well. Um, so when we used to buy the equipment, um, they were very substandard. We used to get it for record and tape exchanges, Shepherd's Bush, uh, about 20 could get you two turntables and a mixer, um, and another five would get you a cassette player. Uh, the cassette player we would use for playing adverts um, from local businesses, uh, that's how the stations were funding themselves, and of course, record play, record plays. We used to get pa- paid to play a record. And as mentioned, uh, yeah, so where we got the um, equipment from, record and tape exchange, they, were, they weren't exactly health and safety, shall I say? Um, and we'd normally have to buy two of each because we, you would get busted every eight days. You would get raided every eight days. So we we had to come back on air quickly, which is, which is in with forty eight hours. We'd have to have a site B or Site B equipment. Uh, Lindsay has an interesting story on substandard equipment and substandard premises. Lindsay? We had one of those situations. We were we were, uh, we were in a, a, a space on Greenland Street uh, in Camden Town, uh, literally around the corner from the, the big Marks and Spencers on Camden High Street. And, um, yeah, we had one office on one side of the... Um, the corridor and on the other side of the office on the other side of the corridor we had a had a had a studio and there was literally a leak in the roof and the carpet was completely sodden so literally every time you touched any of the fader controls you'd get an electric shock i mean it was just it was a com- it was a complete joke but i mean i mean you know i was i was happy to be able to complete my show you know having having had my first show interrupted after 40 minutes, I was thrilled to be able to play, you know, for two or three hours uninterrupted, even though I was, even though the little hair I had was standing on end. The first studio I actually was in was um, underneath a dentist's on the Walworth Road. We, we, we were all given keys to actually get in there. I mean, I've, I've, to be honest with you, I've been writing about it recently, so I've I've been trying to just cast my mind back before these memories finally disappear. You know, what What were we doing? I mean, were we mad? You'd sit in this space, this horrible, dank space, at two and three in the morning, not knowing whether you were broadcasting to ten people or a thousand people. And it's like, it was just a, a total leap of faith. It's like we hadn't got a clue what we were doing. You know, it's like... Hopefully somebody's listening. Hopefully somebody likes what we're doing. But some of those studios were just so grim and you sometimes just sat there on your own in the middle of the night just thinking, what am I doing? So, Lindsay, you, you, an interesting point there. After your first 40 minutes, you had a knock on the door. Now, in the world of, of 
doomers like me, I would think like, oh, this is, you know, God doesn't want me to be a radio broadcaster. This is just typical. <laughs> it just happens to me the very first time that I do it. Whereas you were just kind of like, no, I'm still going to keep doing I'm still going to keep doing this. And Dave, you're the same. The fact that you're still, you know, you've got a radio station to this day. Did, did you ever recognise this as a wider issue of personal or even political power? You know, the, the right of the people to take the airways. When I was a kid, because because I used to spend my very last penny on 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 records, I was I was the the, the compilation maker. You know, I was I was the compilation mixtape maker within my circle. And I used to just buy just hundreds and hundreds of blank cassettes. There was a fantastic shop just next to Highbury and Islington tube station where I could buy boxes and boxes of blank cassettes. My motivation was just wanting to share all this great music I had. I just wanted to just play it to other people. And I, I definitely couldn't hear it on the on the other radio stations. Absolutely. And uh, certainly when we started tracks, our motivation obviously was to... To, to play hip hop, soul, boogie. Um, well, other stations weren't playing. We got that, um, and 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 we were heavily influenced by Invicta. Um, Kiss was just coming through, um, Solar Horizon. Um, but but we just wanted to do it ourselves. We we've always been a thing with tracks to build things uh, and to give others the, uh, the same platform. We wanted to just do go one better. Um, although we were extremely passionate about music. Um, we just wanted to build on that, not just start our station, but play music that people wanted to hear that we couldn't hear on the radio. And we just wanted to go one better. And I always say this for back in those days, sitting in a studio, freezing cold, substandard studio, substandard premises, and you don't know who you're broadcasting to. I still stay to say to this very day that whatever you do DJ-wise, whether you're performing, entering DJ competitions or just being a wedding DJ or club DJ, that sort of environment makes you a better DJ. Where, Dave, where did, and Dave and Lindsay, where did the DJs come from? So in my head, a pirate radio station is like a kind of collaborative co-op type arrangement. Or was there someone in charge? How was it run? And where did the DJs sort of come from? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I said, I thought, well, Trax has, Trax has got its own story to tell. I think Kiss has got a, a, a certainly... Um, rewrote the book on on its roster of DJs which wasn't the normal Canvey Island Essex Soul Mafia DJ um, Kiss rewrote the book on the Soul Mafia funk scene Lindsay yeah I mean I mean Gordon Gordon was doing something very logical he was just he was just kind of recruiting people who had a club following. So his his thinking his thinking was if they've got a club following they'll probably have a a radio following as well so let me get let me get people who know people and you know if if they come to their clubs they'll probably listen to their radio show and that was just very very logical really so you had you know you had Trevor Nelson who ran clubs you had Jazzy B who ran clubs you had Judge Jules who ran clubs? You had Jay Strongman, who ran clubs. Norman Jay, who ran clubs. I mean, it's they had, they had club nights all around London. Yeah, our thing was to take all the guys we grew up in Easton and Stonebridge, and we told them. And ours was a cross funk, cross minority groups: Chinese, Christian, Catholic, Afro Caribbean, African, Asian, 
And we kept telling them a year before we went on air that we're going to be on the radio. And they said, nah, it's only for other people. And we said, no, we're going to take this, take, take, we're going to be on air and you're all going to be able to come on air and pick your records. And that's exactly what we did with a queue of the guys that we grew up with queuing outside the caravan and picking their favourite records. We used to mix in a lot of um, Bangra and Hindi. And obviously we used that and then went on to the massive, massive um, Bangra all day of things, which was huge. I couldn't, I couldn't we, I, that was an accident, to be honest, on Trax's point of view. That was a total accident how we bounced into that. At the same time, Kiss had gone off the air because they were planning to make her move to go legal. And they were doing their own nights down at Dingwalls. We needed Kiss for Pirate Radio. We needed Kiss to go legal. Regardless of the criticisms afterwards when she become part of the machine, I get that. But we felt that it would legitimise all the Pirate Radio struggles if Kiss went legal. Certainly from Trax's point of view. It was, it was hand-to-mouth. You know, it's like... This pirate, sh- this pirate radio show is brilliant. It means I can promote my club, which means I can earn some money, which means I can feed my family, you know. But also, I find that, in coming back to my question, Lindsay's right to address it that way, it, I'm still fascinated by the both of you having this compulsion to play record. I mean, you, so arguably you could have gone and got work someplace else, but it's like, no, I'm going to play these records. I'm going to be a DJ. I'm going to... Do it, I'm doing it on the air, I'm doing it in clubs, I'm doing it, you know, and I find that fascinating. I, I, it's a real strength of character that, that really uh, intrigues me. I definitely don't think of myself as a, as a DJ, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, a great club DJ, that's not my focus, you know, I'm not, I'm, I don't have those skills. I feel as though I'm more of a radio DJ. I, I, I really wanted to do radio because I really love radio.
and uh, you know I used to listen to Kenny Everett when I was a kid and John that's probably way before your time but I'm, I'm familiar with him <laughs> relax I'm not that young <laughs> I mean you know Kenny Everett and John Peel and you know just I, I, I these DJs just absolutely blew my mind you know it's like First time I ever heard Lee Scratch Perry was on the John Peel show. It just took my head off. I agree. I did study those presenters heavily before we went on here. And as a 17-year-old, so I, was, we was, I was coming up to 18 before we actually went on here as a pirate. But I did tell the DJs, I don't want anyone saying things like Big Up All Crew and all that. You be professional, listen to listen to Radio 1, listen to Radio 2, listen to Capital Radio and, and get that style of presentation. We have to be but do you think you would have been given that opportunity on Radio 1, Radio 2? Oh, you're absolutely right. I never would have got a gig because I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just a bit too irreverent. I'm a bit too, I don't know, probably I use too many colloquialisms. I just, I'm not your average. I mean, smashy and nicey, we come back to these two characters that Paul Whitehouse and Harry Enfield created, smashy and nicey. And it's like Radio 1 kind of laughed at those characters but bugger me if those characters don't still exist on radio. You know, they might have been Oh, dear God, yes, they do. <laughs> yeah, they do, especially in hospital radio, I shall say, <laughs> which John and I have both, like, done, done our time in. It's and a... they absolutely do. A hospital radio is full of smashy and nicies. Okay, you know, Just for point of reference, that. I don't think I've ever told my listener base this, but I am, so, so far, the only person I know who ever got kicked out of hospital radio. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> So for our younger listeners, you know, so if if you de- if you are a radio DJ now, you've got loads of messages coming in. You've got you know mobile phone, and you're getting texts, and then you've got live, you've got I don't know Instagram, whatever, whatever, you know, and you so you know people are listening, you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Or if you're in a proper station, they can phone in. But back in the day, pirate stations, I would imagine didn't have probably landlines either half the time. How how did you know? Like so A, who were your listeners? How did you know who your listeners were? You know, who were your audiences? How did you was there a way of keeping in touch with them? Could they make a request maybe if you did a club night where they go, oh, can you play me this next time you're on, you know, the radio? What what was it like? What was the interaction in those days between pirate station DJs and their audiences? Yeah, we decided to go three days, and I think I think we actually had a few wire snipping incidents. Uh, you know, when we went three days a week, I mean, I think the competitors were not happy at all that we were three days a week. Actually, David, what I want to do is I want to just come back to to something you talked about earlier because you were talking about uh, kind of us growing up um, with the Soul Mafia DJs, and. Um, and 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 the, the point you made about is kind of you know they were making a, a very healthy living out of black music and kind of black kids couldn't get into clubs uh, to hear the music and this is this is something that really blew my mind when I was doing the book uh, Masters of the Airwaves with uh, with Dave VJ I mean you know I had great memories of the royalty in Southgate you know this was a fantastic club where I where I experienced the the Monster Froggy Roadshow for the first time, which was probably the best sound system in the UK. And, um, you know, it, it was just just a great club, and I, I had great memories of it. And Dave Dave said to me, well, you might have had great memories of it, but I, me and my mates couldn't get in. And that absolutely blew my mind. So kind of, so kind of 
kind of related to your point, John, I suppose part of me was kind of thinking, yeah, I, I, I definitely want to do this pirate radio thing because I, I, want, I want everybody to be able to share this music. One minute rhymes that don't come out right They bite, they never write That's not polite Am I lying? No, you're quite right Well, tonight, on the very mic You're about to hear We swear The best star rappers of the year So, so Sherry, yell Scream, bravo Also, if you didn't know This is called the show I do remember um, when, when, you, when we first opened the phone lines, um, the guy downstairs who owned the sweet shop let us use his phone lines and he got his son to answer the phone calls for us when the shop was open. Um, but it's really odd because uh, at the time you, you, at the time there was like hits like 
Shaka Khan, I feel for you. Fat back band, I find Anthony and Jocelyn Brandon. Do you know, I had a hundred of hundreds of phone calls, not one of the, and they were mainly from the estates around us, you know, the, the housing estates around us, Neesden, Chalk Hill, Stonebridge, Kensal Rise, Holston. Um, not one of them requested those records. They wanted things like Dougie Fresh and Rochelle and Kashif, High Tension. It was just an amazing time, you know. Um, I don't think I'm, we're going to see that again with the digitalisation of everything. Everyone's bound to catch up and on demand now. I think Spotify and that, but it's just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time. I w- it's hard to explain. I know Lindsay's on and he, he knows what I'm talking about. It's hard to explain to a youngster what it was like then. And then there was the impeding danger at your doorstep. Them guys might come knocking, all, as Lindsay said. Uh, we was threatened with violence many times by Time FM, um, a, lot of, a reggae station based in Halston. Um, uh, and threatened. They actually rang my house. I don't know how they got my house number. They threatened to blow, blow my kneecaps off if we played reggae. So I said we better stay off the reggae. <laughs> Mr. Palmer was paying us a lot of, uh, from Jetstar. Was paying us to play. Um, you know, and he was great. And we played at the Apollo as Tracks FM night. But as I said, the phone calls. When you think no one's listening, and the amount of phone calls we got at this sweet shop, unbelievable. <laughs> and they wanted this hip hop soul soundtrack. You know, this. That they weren't playing on, on national radio. I mean, before I mean, before mobile phones and the internet, you know, you would collect requests on on bits of paper and take them into the studio. You know, people would know you were doing your show, and they would give you bits of paper with 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 requests on. And that was, you know, you took those bits of paper into your show. Just on that, Lindsay, because I, I, so Froggy was a great. Uh, mentor to me um i thought he was really good and he was good if you're an upcoming dj to give you advice but i remember the soul mafia dj uh, to to a to a dj to a man shall i say uh, objected 110 percent on the release of street sounds um compilation albums because they said that they're releasing um they're making music that costs us lots of money accessible uh to the masses at a cheaper price. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, uh, you know, they, they, they had this elite status because they had these, they had these elite bits of music that nobody could get their hands on and nobody could afford. And, you know, they were just trying to, just trying to retain their elite status. But the, the scene was just growing too quickly. It's like, you know, all of these underground tunes were getting licensed to UK labels and licensed to compilations. It was it was just all growing too fast. You know, you know, gone are the days of of, of Donald Bird Wind Parade and 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 kind of, you know, Gil's got hair in the bottle. It's like you know, Donny Hathaway, the the ghetto. You know, those those days had gone. And I mean, I, I mean, there was one DJ who actually, one prominent DJ who kind of took me out for dinner and, and made me, I mean, this was when I was working at Black Echoes. He took me out for dinner and gave me a cassette full of new soul music. And he wanted me to understand that all of this hip hop that was out there was just, it was just a passing transient phase. Mm-hmm. And I should really, you know, get, and I remember exactly what was on that cassette? I remember the year because I remember the tracks. You know, there was uh, uh, Zap. Do you really want an answer? There was Bo Williams. If you're ready, you know, fantastic, fantastic soul music of that day. 
and he, you know, he wanted me to stay focused on soul music because he didn't like hip hop and he, he just didn't want hip hop to enter the scene. Um, uh, David, just coming back to your point about this, this group of people, the soul mafia. So we are talking about just incredible, incredible DJs, you know, Chris Hill, uh, Robbie Vincent, Greg Edwards, Jeff Young, Pete Tong, you know, just um, amazing, amazing DJs. But I mean, they, they really weren't into hip hop. And, um, if, if, if hip hop took over, uh, they they were kind of going to be out of a job, you know. They were going to become they were going to become old farts. They were going to become redundant. So they really wanted to try and steer everybody away from this hip hop. But when I joined Black Echoes, um, I suddenly realised that there was a whole group of London DJs who nobody knew anything about. And when I went and saw Gordon Mack, or I went and saw Trevor Nelson, or Paul Anderson, or George Power, when I went and saw these guys, they went, "Blimey, nobody from." Blues and Soul or any newspaper has ever come to see us. You know, they were absolutely blown away. So I was going to see all of these DJs and taking their photographs and they were like, wow, you know, nobody's ever written about us or taken our photograph. So there was this, there was this unbelievable scene in London that was completely being ignored by, as it were, the soul music establishment which was bizarre, you know. You got you got Trevor Nelson and Paul Anderson and Norman Jay, you know, playing all this amazing music in these amazing clubs, and you know they were nobody was writing about them. And of course, the Mastermind Roadshow, you know, Davey J and, and and all the guys in there who gave me my first radio show, and and of and of course the the, the London DJs were playing hip hop. Uh, you know, they embraced it. They knew how to mix it into the existing soul music tunes. You know, they, you know, the Mastermind Roadshow had no problem at all fusing hip hop. They had uh, the SOS band just be good to me on one turntable, and they had Houdini, the freaks come out at night on the other turntable, and they were mixing them effortlessly. So, the, you know, these cool London DJs had no problem with hip hop at all. Well, I remember we had run ins with blues and soul. Um, uh, so, Echoes I used to buy religiously because they had a reggae chart as well, which I loved. Um, uh, uh, and they would uh, regularly report on them. And then Record Mirror for me with James Hamilton was fantastic. Uh, but I was extremely disappointed with Blues and Soul because they just refused to report on anything hip-hop, which was just coming up through, through the roof. It's just coming from the earth, you know, this thing that's coming through. Uh, Vernon Birch, lovely lady, is, is, is a, a perfect example of what I, what I, what I later on started to call two-step you know the the original definition of two-step and it, and it might be it might be a bit insulting to some people who can't dance but it's like it's like a very very easy to dance to soul music you know one step to the left one step to the right you know really simple but it's it's got a groove and it's got a certain tempo and it's also called reggae man soul because you know, if if reggae people played soul, they played these kind of tunes because they were de- they were down tempo and they were groovy and they were easy for everybody to dance to, even reggae people who weren't necessarily into soul music. It was a pirate favourite. It's like you'd never, you would never ever have heard this on legal radio. Nobody on legal radio would have played this. 
they would never have. I mean, first of all, it wasn't released as a single in the UK. No, no. We are talking. No. We are talking about an album track from an album that wasn't even released in the UK. You know, it's like, you know, the UK radio was all about UK single releases, UK releases. I mean, I found Loving from the Fatback Band was an album track from an unreleased album. You know, it's like, but I mean, it's like, yeah, this is a perfect example of the music we couldn't hear on UK radio. It was out there. We knew it was out there. wasn't getting played on legal radio. And we really felt very strongly that the rest of London would love it. So, we, you know, we played it. And it's interesting, Lindsay, you mentioned these, 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 a track like Vernon Birch, uh, Lovely Lady, which is a two-step. Uh, it's, it's, it's a guiding light. It's its bass line, I think, which is, works wonderful in house party sound systems. But it, it's a direct con- contrast at that time when it was when we found all this great music like James Brown and thing and the vibrations which were playing later and um, Band of Black Rio and Eddie Harris. It was a direct contrast to what was being played uh, in fields at that time in London. Well, in, in Acid House, it was a really funny time actually. in 
and everyone was just having a good time, you know. As I said, Salt the Soul's African scent, and then mm. we would go to a field and everyone would be, yeah, of course it was drug-infused to a degree, ecstasy and stuff like that, but it was, everyone was together, and it, I think it scared the authorities, as well as Pirate Radio was doing at the time, because Pirate Radio at that time was promoting these, these field gigs, and I think the authorities needed to put a lid on it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, Radio One were playing soul music. They were playing the big hits. Um, you know, that you, you'd hear "Free" by Denise Williams because it was a number one record. You'd hear "Move Closer" by Phyllis Nelson because it was a number one record. You know, so they were playing these huge Diana Ross records and "Happy Birthday" by Stevie Wonder because they were number one records. But there was this strata underneath it. You know, would you ever hear Teddy Pendergrass on Radio 1? God, no. It would never happen. I mean, you know, bless him, you might have heard Robbie Vincent play Teddy on on Radio London or or Greg on Capital Radio on a Saturday night. But, you know, and so you've got this strata of million-selling soul artists that not getting played. And then the vibrations, you know, David, the tune you're referring to, I put that in a strata below. You know, it was like a strata below a strata. It was like these tunes would never in a zillion years get played on legal radio. So, you know, God bless Jazzy B and and Norman Jay and those guys for, for, for introducing them.
Some of the music we were selling um, had no chance to be play, to be playlisted. I mean, absolutely no chance. And everyone wanted a copy. Band of Black Rio, um, and then you've picked. Um, it's a band from Brazil. Uh, they made three albums um, uh, that were hits in the disco area. They were formed in 1976. Um, but uh, they, 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 you've obviously picked um, Cheryl. What made you pick out Band of Black Rio? Do you think that was the early signs of jazz funk? Where I went and, you know, on the radio shows I listened to, that was that was really the only Band of Black Rio I heard. I mean, it's like that was that was the principal track. I mean, you, you you're you're I think you're probably more of a Band of Black Rio connoisseur than I am. It's like I didn't even know they had three albums. You know, that that was that was always just the predominant track. <laughs> Thank you. 
so you had these amazing uh, kind of jazz, yeah, musicians that came from the jazz scene, they were jazz musicians. And, I mean, Roy, Roy Ayers was a jazz musician, but he, he kind of, you know, he, he did make some commercial disco tunes. But artists like Eddie Harris, they would kind of just set up an amazing groove and just run with it for four minutes because they weren't they weren't soul singers, they weren't writing soul songs. It was just a group of great musicians just jamming and just <laughs> just creating this amazing groove. And it's it just it just worked as a club record, it worked as a radio record, it worked just just an irresistible groove, really. I mean James Brown, I mean all of those James Brown records were like live band one take. I mean, he, he wasn't going to fanny around. He was like, you know, and in, in fact, there's a, I mean, there's one f famous James Brown record in which, in which the drummer makes a mistake and, and James Brown actually finds him live on the recording. So you can hear James Brown on the recording, actually r reminding the drummer that he was going to get fined for making a mistake. Uh, I, I, as ever with everything in life, was late to the party and all of this. So, although I did hear Kiss at some point, I have a brother who's five years older than me, so his friends used to come around the house and somebody tuned it into that one day when everyone was around bunking off school. Um, it might have even been the same day I bunked off school the after, for the afternoon session so that we could watch Coming to America, which was just rented from the local video shop, but that's <laughs> another story. Um, the first time, saw it many times after that. Anyway... Is in the I do remember kind of this weird period in the mid nineties uh, from a personal perspective, which I'm not going to give listeners the details on. Very fucking weird period for me personally, um, but nevertheless, a rough decade the nineties. But anyway, um, I do remember sitting in my back garden with a radio, and I don't know why I was doing it. It wasn't even the kind of music I liked, but there was some kind of like uh, rave hardcore stations going on. I was just basically running up and down the dial very very slowly. Right, I can't show people physically, but uh, if you imagine, uh, the radio is sitting on my lap, the aerial is fully extended, I've got the tuning knob between my thumb and forefinger. Yes, in those days there was a knob, children, if you're listening. <laughs> and I would just tune, slowly tune, one movement, one movement, one movement. I was absolutely determined, what can I find on every single part of the FM dial, the AM dial? the long wave dial and all this kind of stuff. And I still have that weird fascination now. Um, in fact, interestingly, wherever I go away in this country, or especially if I ever go abroad, I always take a radio with me, a little, a little radio that you just get there, battery-powered or wind-up. And when I get to wherever I'm going, I sit in the hotel room or the hostel or the bush that I've ended up in that night and uh, extend the aerial and just do exactly that. What can I find? And I'm still deeply fascinated by it too um i don't know why actually i don't know specifically if you ask me what specifically i'm not sure what fascinates me about except to just hear what else is going on do you know what i mean i just like what what else what can i find here what can i hear i've never heard before you know when you reach my age which is you know like 112 when you when you get to when you get to my age you, you feel as though you've heard you've heard it all before so everything, everything. I mean, I mean, this, I mean, I'm I'm now teaching 18, 19, 20 year old students, and they're like, you know, oh yeah, yeah. I feel as I've heard this before. I said, I said to them, imagine how I feel. You know, absolutely everything I listen to sounds like something I've heard before. 
So my, my, my frantic searching up and down the dial is just looking for something, anything to stimulate me. Cause I'm just, I just want to just show me something new, please. Mm. God, show me something new, show me something new and interesting and just be creative. But so much of what I hear these days is just so derivative. And I, you know, I can't, I mean, I can't, I can't blame kids cause you know, for them it's new. You know, for the for the for the nineteen, twenty, twenty-one year old, even the twenty-five, thirty-year-old music maker, you know, it's they think they've discovered something new, but it's it all sounds the same to me. So uh, in nineteen eighty-seven, I, I remember switching on and Kiss were on Saturday, Sundays, and I was working at Tesco's nights, and um, uh, Tosca, who I met at the Masters of the Airways book launch, was I was looking out for Tosca because. And I'll never forget the sh- he played in Westwood. Probably played it on Kiss, and Steve Devon probably played it on Horizon. But I had only heard it, and 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 um, he played um, uh, Public Enemy Rebel without a pause, which just changed the game. Dude. It just changed the game. It changed the game, and, and 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 I was really embarrassed to be at this book launch. I thought, oh, was, you know, I'm, all these people are famous. You know, what am I doing here? But when I met Tosca, I just thought, you know, sometimes you reach, I was approaching 50 at that time and I was thinking, oh, nothing really impresses me anymore, you know, you reach that stage in your life. But I, I met Tosca and I thought it was really important. Yeah, all I would say in closing is thank you uh, to everybody. Thank you to Julie V, my co-host. Thank you to David RB, my frequent co-host. And thank you, lastly, to Lindsay Wesker for being on All The Rage. It's been an absolute... Pleasure. This is this. I've been wanting to do this show for a long time, uh, and uh, you're all welcome to come back on and do it any other time. There's anything else you want to talk about? Because this has been great. <laughs> so thank you. All the rage with John Bowd. <laughs> on www.tracksfm.org.